Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is an award-winning comedian, best-selling author, and host of the Breakup Monologues podcast. Her most recent book, which goes by the same name, explores what skills someone can learn from breakups and why they can actually be beneficial. Previously, she has been the founder of a boutique music PR agency and is a patron of the LGBTQ charity Switchboard. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Rosie Wolby to the podcast. Welcome, Rosie. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Hi, Serena. So I just want to start off by asking you a question about what your early life was like and your journey to then having the career that you have now and having kind of the interests in relationship psychology and that kind of thing. So tell me a bit about what growing up was like for you and how you got into comedy. I grew up in the north of England in a town called Ormskirk, which I always say is is a bit near Liverpool and a bit like Liverpool if you take away everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it, it was a quiet town. It's a lovely place, really. But perhaps as a teenager, when I was grappling with finding my sense of self, finding my identity, and particularly as a young gay woman coming out at a time when perhaps we weren't so open to people being gay and having different identities and more fluid sexualities and gender identities that we're more familiar with now. I certainly felt (laughs) that I, you know, it was challenging to find my place in the world. And I desperately wanted to get to London to start a career because it felt like there were opportunities to to be more creative, both in terms of defining yourself and your identity, but also in defining what you want to do. I think that has altered a lot now. We have a very different world where we have very, very vibrant cities all over the UK and indeed all over the world. But I think when I was growing up, and I was a student in the 1990s, it really felt like you had to get to London where things were happening and things were going on. And so I started my career in the media world. I was a trainee on a film and TV training course. And so was was helping various production companies to make programs and to make films and actually ended up finding my way to a production company called Maya Vision, who produced a lot of work looking at lesbian and gay identities. And I I worked on a film that uh, tracked lesbian and gay representation in British film and television. So that was really, really interesting. And I became very interested in media and have subsequently worked a lot in radio broadcasting and, of course, now podcasting in journalism and writing. And I also did a stint working as a music journalist at Time Out magazine back in the days when that was a magazine full of of information that we couldn't really get anywhere else. It was uh, pre the internet really taking off and we used to get music listings for gigs and events all coming in by fax, (laughs) If, if you can imagine such a thing. So Yeah, I did an eclectic mix of jobs in sort of media, communications, worked a little bit in PR as well, as you say, founded my own agency, but really wanted to find my own voice and comedy particularly seemed like an exciting way to do that. And you can, I think, 
look at what's going on in the world and you can make things fun, but it's a great way of making really challenging and interesting questions about human relationships and existence really accessible. And that's what really interested me is that I could do shows that had a a provocative undertone and were gently prodding at the way that we we do live our lives and looking at the sort of structures we have in place that perhaps allow inequalities to to develop and you know you can sort of ask questions about those kind of things but make it feel quite fluffy because you're telling jokes and you're making it very funny and so I began a trilogy of shows all about human relationships which began with a spoofy lecture called the science of sex which is the kind of biology lesson we all wish we'd had at school and then as you say my first book was called is monogamy dead which was based on the second part of this trilogy about love and relationships and then I began talking about breakups. And that work in breakups has really expanded into looking at all types of endings, uh, endings of our platonic friendships and relationships, endings of our business and working relationships and how we deal with that adversity and how we can reinvent ourselves and transform ourselves and harness what could be a challenging, difficult situation, a loss of some kind, and maybe finding ways to turn that into an opportunity, an opportunity for self-reflection and growth and learning and healing and beginning something new. And so when I came to write my book, The Breakup Monologues, the first half is actually written in a backwards sort of timeline. And the second half is written in a forwards timeline to illustrate this idea that the end of one chapter is always the beginning of another. And so I do think there's a lot of really transferable life lessons I've learned in my my <laughs> quite unusual activities and uh, my research activities at times. And those life lessons are actually very applicable to our, our broader working lives and daily lives as we go about our business. For example, one of the things that I did to put myself somewhat out of my comfort zone when I was researching Is Monogamy Dead was to go and perform comedy at a sex party, <laughs> which is perhaps not an experience everybody shares. But what was really interesting to me was the set of rules about people's boundaries and respecting one another that you had to all agree to, to be able to enter the space. And it was actually one of the most respectful spaces that I think I've ever been in, because people were being so conscious about how they treated one another and asking about things like consent and the sort of more you know, intimate activity went on in a separate space that I wasn't, uh, I, I didn't really go into that space. Um, but, you know, I was performing a cabaret and, and everyone was not really drinking. Nobody was being aggressive or weird or pushy. And in fact, there was a sort of mutual sense of accountability because to enter the space, you had to go with what they called a pal. Uh, they had this system. So you had to go in with somebody who would vouch for you and would take you home if you were being in any way pushy or weird. And so I think this sense of mutual accountability is is really interesting. And I think in our business lives, our working lives, we should be looking out for one another, looking out for who might be treating somebody in a way that's not appropriate or, or not fair. And, you know, there's really a lot of broader life lessons that are very, very transferable from this <laughs> quite fun journey I've been on in looking at love and relationships and those more intimate connections. That's definitely a very interesting way to communicate about some quite serious themes and topics. You mentioned there that your sexuality has had a big part to play in your creative and professional work. 
What role do you think your sexuality has had in either excelling your career or holding you back in any way, if you think it has? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think had I not been gay or had I been gay at a different time in the world when you know, we weren't quite so hostile. I mean, I'm not saying everything is fixed now and (laughs) it's certainly not. And still young people coming out, I think, find it very difficult to do so, you know, depending on perhaps how their families respond. But in general, we do see such progression going on and we do see so many more rights that LGBTQ plus people have in terms of, I mean, I've just recently got married, in fact. So (laughs) there's a happy ending to the breakup monologues. So, you know, I think things have changed so much, but we mustn't forget how just feeling in some way different to the voices that we hear in a certain environment does make us feel less sure, less confident about what we have to offer, what we have to say. So I do think that, you know, had I not been gay at the time I was gay and was coming out as a a young woman, I think I might have had a different type of career because I feel like there would have been opportunities I would have felt more comfortable in applying for different types of jobs and maybe having a more Um, sort of, I mean, I was quite an academic child at school and maybe following, you know, those exam results into a more sort of ambitious career. You know, I was I was being pushed into sort of uh, medicine or, you know, maybe maybe business, maybe different types of things I could go into. But I sort of drifted and floated for quite a while and floated around the media world where you know, there's not always as much money unless you, you know, get into a sort of higher management role. And occasionally I had interviews for those types of jobs. But I think I felt there was a at that time a straight white male <laughs> culture, um, you know, going on a lot of the organizations that I was having interviews for. So I think I felt I really wanted to find my own way, find my own path. And comedy really gave me a voice to do that. And I think comedy traditionally has been a voice for people who feel that they're in some way outside of the mainstream, outside of the majority. Interestingly, though, now comedy is altering because it's on TV everywhere and comedy is becoming quite mainstream. And and you actually see a lot of people who've had very successful business careers or careers in the media now sort of transferring into comedy because they see it as an opportunity to to make money and to make a living whereas you know traditionally a lot of comedians were you know not necessarily rich shall we say um <laughs> so i think it's interesting how comedy is is evolving and it's been this voice for people who perhaps did feel like outsiders and will perhaps see how that goes and you know where where the next next sort of radical platform the next rock and roll is because it, it may not be comedy for much longer um But yeah, I do think these sort of intersections of how we might feel marginalised or different in some way to the voices that we hear do impact our choices. And I think after a certain amount of time, maybe we feel we can't go back to where we were. You know, we've we've come a certain distance with our with our journey. Um, For example, you know, I'm not a parent. And I think that's because gay women at a certain time were not really expected to to have children you know certainly when I came out I was one of a number of people of a certain generation whose parents would have said oh well I won't get grandchildren then because that was just the assumption whereas now we do see LGBT people having families and having different types of careers but if you think about LGBT people going into 
a sort of corporate career in perhaps the 1980s or 1990s, they probably would have had to hide their identity. And that's certainly never something that would have appealed to me. I'm I'm very much about authenticity and being who you are. So I know all of these things certainly coloured my choices. And I do think comedy has given me a route to perhaps now even coming back a little to the more business and corporate world, because I've been starting to speak about these relationship skills that we can learn through comedy. We can we can learn, we can develop our resilience through doing something as extreme as going on stage and doing stand up and, and dealing with hecklers and, <laughs> and recovering from a bad gig that hasn't gone well and going back and doing it all again. And so I do think that comedy has given me a way to almost get back to the sort of business and and corporate world because I've got something interesting to offer now about how we can really improve the quality of our human relationships by using humour, but also by setting our goals, setting our expectations, communicating. And when I was researching my book about open relationships and ethical non-monogamy and having different types of relationships, I came across so many people whose communication skills were just so developed because if you're going to have an open relationship, if you're going to maybe go to a sex party, you do have to communicate about what you're looking for, what you need, what you want, what you don't want, what your boundaries are. And I think as human beings, we are not always very good at communicating these things. It's very interesting to hear that the adversity that you face, I suppose, involved with your sexuality has really pushed you into going into comedy. And I think that's something that you hear time and time again. A lot of comedians have faced adversity in some way or another or kind of experience uh, some kind of mental health issue or, or, you know, have a dark side to their kind of personality, which sort of allows them to be comedians. Do you feel that's true? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? There's the, the cliche of the sad clown, the, the unhappy comedian who, you know, is looking for connection in this rather peculiar way <laughs> that is actually very stressful at times. So, yes, I think I think there are interesting personality types and there have indeed been studies conducted where they found that comedians are a very complex mix of introvert and extrovert, whereas in acting, you might find that actors would tend towards extroversion, whereas comedians typically have this real, real mix of different qualities between the two. So you probably see people like myself who are very much battling between two two worlds, the sort of introvert in me who just wants to sit and write a book, which of course I did during lockdown. And <laughs> that was lovely in, in, in many ways, even though it was a terrible time in the world. And, you know, the extrovert in me who does want to go out and be on a stage and communicate ideas and enjoy the audience's reaction and, and the laughter. And I think in many ways I've been conflicted throughout my life between these sort of dualities. You know, when I was growing up, my mother was an English literature lecturer and my father was a maths lecturer. And so there was the sort of, do I go a sciencey route or do I go the creative route? I've actually got an electronic engineering degree, but I ended up doing, you know, the arts and the media and writing and performing and creativity. And so I've always been, I guess, conflicted. And, you know, then there's the question of, do you decide to be self-employed and have that kind of freedom or, you know, employed and have that security? So I think I've always been in these kind of conflicts between these different sort of uh, binaries, really. And perhaps now we're more in a professional world when we can sit 
in different places and we're more comfortable with people having more portfolio careers. I think I grew up at a time when the question was always, what do you do and what do you want to do? As if there's just a single answer. Whereas I think for someone like me, there are many, many answers. You know, I'm a comedian and author and podcaster and speaker and communicator of ideas and science. And so, yeah, I think it's really interesting how the world has developed a little bit in how we speak about jobs and roles and our culture around careers is, is sort of evolving a little bit, which is largely healthy, I think. And as you say, our awareness around diversity and inclusion is improving a lot too. You mentioned earlier the benefit of getting up on stage and getting rejected, basically, and having to recover from those shows that, you know, you tanked and it didn't go very well. What kind of skills have you learned from that? I think comedians have become very agile at learning from failure because it's the worst gigs that we actually learn the most from because they're the ones that rather than you sort of go home thinking, way, I'm brilliant, I don't need to change anything, you think, God, I'm terrible, I need to change everything. <laughs> and so you become very creative in those moments after a bad gig. Well, hopefully you do. I mean, you might decide to give up altogether. But <laughs> if, it, if there's been some shred of hope, maybe there was one joke, that really, really worked. And so you start to think about how you can develop and rewrite the script and reinvent yourself. And I do think these are the sort of transferable skills that we can think about using in our everyday lives. When we've had a difficult or challenging event, when we've had a breakup or we've lost our job and we've lost the sense of identity that was attached to that, the labels like, you know, I am this person, I am a wife, or, you know, I am a manager, or, a you know, somebody, a founder, or all of these things. Um, and we lose those labels, and it can be very discombobulating for us. But those moments can be our most creative, because we might rethink who we want to be and how to go about doing that, putting the building blocks in place for a new, a new professional identity, a new way of thinking about things and communicating about things. So, yeah, I do think comedians have perhaps unwittingly developed agile resilience skills. And so I do talk a little bit about relationships, resilience and reinvention. That's sort of my three R's because I'm an R as well, a Rosie. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I do think comedy is a, is a really interesting way to uh, challenge oneself, put oneself out of one's comfort zone. <laughs> Do you think a part of, I guess, beyond resilience is, you know, to be able to stand up in front of a group of people, which many of our listeners have to do on a daily basis and to build that confidence is a part of it, understanding and realizing that other people's opinions don't actually affect the person that you are in some kind of way. Does confidence fall from that? And can you be a better public speaker by kind of recognizing that and understanding that? I think with anything, the number of times you've delivered something as that increases, you become more confident in what you've got to say because you start to realize that the times when it really hasn't worked are probably the exception rather than the rule. You know, if you have got a good piece of content, a good piece of material, and you feel happy about the way that you are delivering that, you probably will find there are the occasional events where the audience doesn't connect with it because it's not quite what they want or 
they're just a really difficult audience sometimes. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think the more you do anything, it becomes easier to understand your own sense of purpose in what you are delivering and what you are wanting to say. Um, for example, before I did comedy, I was a musician for a while and a singer-songwriter. And I used to go to gigs around London and around the UK and perform songs. And the interesting thing about the London music circuit at that time in the sort of mid-1990s was that you were not really encouraged to do gigs with any real frequency because you were sort of expected to bring your audience along. And so if you weren't a big name yet, then, you know, you, you were only expected to do a, a gig in London about once every month, whereas comedians tend to to do several gigs a night. You know, you can just sort of rock up from one to the next one. So you can really hone your skills, your delivery, your craft very, very quickly. Whereas in music, because you do gigs less frequently, typically, unless you went on a tour around lots of different locations, which you may not do when you're just starting out, you don't get to develop that sense of confidence in what you're doing nearly so quickly. So it was a real eye-opener for me when I started comedy. And you could do gigs every night. Or like I say, sometimes even double or treble up and do <laughs> multiple gigs a night. Or when you go to Edinburgh Fringe, you might run around doing many, many gigs during a day across a period of 24 hours. So, yeah, I think just delivering something time and time again and really feeling well well honed and well oiled with it will really um really help you to feel confident in it and you'll probably be able to deal with adversity you'll be able to ad lib you'll be able to comment on something that's happening in the space and check in with people and check that they are doing okay but then go back to your your script and what what you need to deliver as you said with comedy but also with kind of anything that involves you pushing out yourself out of your comfort zone it can be easy to quit and therefore, you know, you don't build that resilience. In those moments where you have had a bad experience and you didn't get the reception that you wanted and, you know, you might have even been thinking that you you will quit and give up, what do you do in those moments to kind of tell yourself or push yourself to, to stay within it so that you do build that resilience? Is there kind of anything that you do in those moments to kind of push you forward? Well, I think um, remembering the times when it has gone well, I think checking in and connecting with the colleagues and friends and peers that you trust. And, you know, often if I've had a challenging Edinburgh run where I'm getting weird, stroppy audiences in, if I feel that I could do with having a show where I've got some nice, familiar faces in, people who I know connect with what I've got to say, I'll perhaps deliberately invite some of them you know, to a particular performance. And so I know I've got those kind of touchstones in the audience because I've got my trusted people, my people who will give me honest feedback, but who I know understand me and what I've, I've got to say. So sometimes I will try and be kind to myself and, and put those good people in the audience because I know they get it. And if there's maybe a new show I'm doing that isn't working in some way, they'd probably say, ah, you know, maybe try this, or they'd have some constructive criticism and feedback rather than just 
you know, just, just sort of heckling or or being weird, <laughs> which is a lot of Edinburgh audiences. Even when you've got a good show, oh my goodness, I've had some interesting, interesting times up there. Um, and probably the most frustrating thing that happens in Edinburgh is there's so much confusion about all the different venues because many have got different rooms. Is you could be five minutes into your show. And a group of people will realise that they had tickets for somebody else completely and they'll all get up and walk out because they've come into the wrong room. <laughs> you know, so you have to deal with all these unexpected things happening and uh, lights and microphones not working or all kinds of things. But, you know, I think comedy is just a brilliant way to become really emotionally agile. And, you know, I do explore all of this in in my two books with, I hope, some humour and fun. And there is something I talk about in the book where I I first did a show all about a breakup when it was still really fresh in my mind. And I rang the promoter and wanted to cancel the gig because I thought I was in too much of a vulnerable state to actually go ahead. And I ended up doing the gig. And I think that vulnerability really connected with the audience and really engaged with them. And I had one of my favorite gigs ever. So it was almost like a traumatic memory of, of the breakup was almost starting to be reprogrammed in my own mind as I recollected it with the audience's laughter acting as a sort of drug that helped to soothe the trauma of those memories. So we rewire our brains constantly when we think about memories like breakup or even a, a bad gig or an event or a work project that has not gone well. We can develop our resilience by recollecting those experiences with people we love and trust and who, you know, we can we can then relive those memories with and start to process them and start to think about them in more positive and healthy ways and think about the next step and the way forward. Through your work with sort of talking about relationships specifically in a business professional context, what have you witnessed as being sort of one of the biggest challenges that people face with relationships in, in the workplace? Well, I do think that communicating is really difficult and communicating vulnerably. And, you know, particularly when we're in a position of leadership, I think we can feel our sense of authority may be threatened. I mean, I've worked in some very eclectic and interesting environments. I've worked in a few music PR firms. And so I had one boss who was kind of too vulnerable and would let us in too much on her personal life and and I think her boundaries were not <laughs> were not great um it was a little bit sort of ab fab at times and we once um, she'd been uh, at a party enjoying herself the previous night with some some of our clients and uh, yeah me and a colleague didn't know where she was because she hadn't turned up to work one day and we <laughs> she lived really nearby so we went and uh, kind of knocked on the door to get her up you know so I think she was not great at setting her boundaries. And, you know, we knew too much about her personal life at times. But also, I do think that I've also met and worked with leaders who are, you know, there was actually a record label owner who had been a former military man who was very sort of rigid in his boundaries. And and he would sort of ring me and say, Rolly, what's happening? What are you doing? What are you out of your tiny mind? Um, you know, and there was no sort of, hi, how are you? <laughs> um, so his communication was a bit too straight down to business and no no kind of chit chat. So I do think it can be it can be difficult for certain people to to understand that scale of of vulnerability. But I think as we become more and more experienced with connecting and and with 
you know, relating to human beings. And I honestly do recommend to anybody, whatever your, you know, job normally is, typically, I I would recommend having a go at stand-up comedy because it's such an interesting way to think about communicating and communicating efficiently and really effectively because when I first started in comedy, there were some gigs I did where I only had 90 seconds to impress the audience. And then there are these horrible gigs where if you don't impress the audience, you get gonged off called the gong show. So it really makes you think about getting to the point quite quickly, but in a way that is engaging and vulnerable and something that the audience can connect with. So not a kind of, oh, you know, how um, you are for your tiny mind, <laughs> like that guy who used to ring me and for an update in quite an abrupt way. Uh, but more of a opener that is accessible and open and this is me who are you and and really being open to connect with people and yeah I, I honestly I do think have a go at doing a short five minute comedy set and you'll, you'll really start to understand something about the tightrope act of vulnerability and strength and and also using humor to breakups have been and are a massive part of your interest both in your comedy but even just in your research around psychology and relationships why do you think that breakups are really important in teaching us life lessons that can be transferred to sort of every every part of our life so even kind of in our professional lives as well why are breakups such an important experience for us to learn from well, the subtitle of my book, um, the title is The Breakup Monologues, but the subtitle is The Unexpected Joy of Heartbreak. And it's very much about how adversity can ultimately be an opportunity for us to really think about how we want to reset our feelings about who we are in the world and what we want to do, where we want to go next. We have lost perhaps an imagined future about who we were going to be with and what relationship we were going to be in and what our presence and identity in that relationship was going to be. So we do have to rethink our immediate futures and longer term futures too. So it really does require some agile thinking and some some reinvention and some optimism and some some dreaming and some daydreaming and really thinking about where to go next. So I do think breakups do ultimately aid our creativity. And I do think they've often been the most creatively fertile periods for me, writing books or writing new shows. And so, yeah, the book is very much about that sense of hope that we can ultimately get after the dust has settled on a breakup and, you know, even a professional breakup as, as well. There is a chapter about those and how we can then go about starting on a new adventure. I've spoken to tons of women, especially who have gone on to do new things, perhaps found the time and headspace to start their dream career after perhaps their kids have gone off and, and they've you know, the woman has got divorced from their husband, that kind of thing. Um, people who have found an exciting new relationship that perhaps is a better and more compatible partner choice for them. Um, even some women who have left heterosexual marriages become late blooming lesbians, you know, people who've gone through a change in life that wasn't something they felt comfortable doing sooner, but perhaps was something they'd been thinking about. And finally, this, this breakup, this adversity was a catalyst for change. And in many cases, ultimately positive change. And so that's really a lot of of what the book is about and about my own 
relationships and how my past breakups have really helped me to learn how to ultimately stay in a relationship and commit to a partnership with a girlfriend she's called in the book and as I say she's now my wife so (laughs) hopefully I think breakups can be a learning experience and over time a, a positive experience because of what they've brought to us. What is sort of unique about going through something like a breakup is the fact that it's more or less a pretty universal experience that everyone can relate to in some kind of way, even if it's not romantic, it can be ending a relationship with a person in any kind of context, but also sort of experiencing the death of a loved one or something and and going through bereavement. Like, you know, all of these are quite similar experiences that I guess teach us a lot about change and the fact that change is quite a positive thing. What do you think is kind of the most important skill from going through something like that, that you can use in a business context? Well, I think to recognize that change is scary and to, if we can, embrace that and and know that good times will, will be coming and that there is opportunity to come in this difficult and dark time. But I do think to reach out to our support networks, whether that is our personal friends or whether that is our our colleagues who we trust, like I was talking about, you know, having some of my comedy colleagues who I particularly love and trust in the audience if I've been having a really (laughs) challenging Edinburgh run. You know, it is reaching out to those people that we trust and that we feel connected to, that we feel we get some warmth and support from and to reach out to them and their help in rewriting the script for the next chapter of our lives. I think that communication is really, really helpful. Or even, you know, seeing a professional, seeing a coach or a therapist or somebody to to help us devise this next stage of our lives. Because I think just sometimes just bouncing it off of somebody else can be really, really helpful. Or even if we do write our own script, our own notes, I find, you know, when I'm writing a blurb for a new book or writing the opening chapter of a potential new book, just even reading it out aloud makes a difference rather than reading it on a screen. Just thinking about telling it to somebody, speaking it to an audience. I think just saying something out out loud, even if it is just to ourselves, even if it's just to the dog or the cat. That's really good advice. Thanks, Rosie. We have now come to the last section of the podcast. And this is a segment we call Answer the Internet. And this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs the answers to. And this question is from Reddit and it's from a user called Mfeg. And they ask, how do you get over fear of public speaking? Yes, well, I think we've sort of touched on this. And I think the more you do something, the more it becomes a muscle that is trained and that you've used. and you know, very much when I started performing on stage as a musician, I had terrible stage fright. I was incredibly nervous and I would be shaking on stage. But by the time I'd done a number and number of music gigs and then ultimately transferred to doing stand-up comedy, it started to become normalized. It was like, okay, I'm getting on stage. I'm doing this. And, you know, I'd gone from being somebody who really hated the thought of getting on stage. I, I was so, so terrifying, so scared. But doing it hundreds and hundreds of times really helped me. And actually, even though when I was 
making music quite seriously. I never, during that period of my life, got over my stage fright going on and doing music. It was interesting. Once I'd started doing comedy and occasionally did a music gig, again, just for fun, I once got my old band back together on the anniversary of my album having first come out and I released it digitally for the first time and I toured a comedy show looking back at my music career. And it was really interesting how going on to do music was so much less scary now that I'd done comedy for many, many years because, as I say, the intensity of going on stage night after night after night or even several times a night just meant that the experience of being up there was so normalised that I felt fine with it. But you may want to make sure that the first times you do something are not the most scary audiences. For example, a ton of people, when they first launch into comedy, might do a comedy course, and their first public gig will be the showcase gig where they perform to all the other people who've been on the course and a group of invited friends. And so that's actually a lovely gig to do as your your first ever gig. I, I didn't do that. By the time I'd done a comedy course, I'd already done some really scary gigs as part of competitions and really throw myself in the deep end. Um, and going back to sort of doing a comedy cause showcase gig felt like a you know a walk in the park it's like oh I'm just performing to lovely people this is great but you may want to try and set up your first few events that are with perhaps your colleagues who you know well um perhaps aren't the huge huge events to thousands of people just yet you may want to start off small and then work your way up the next question we ask all of our guests on the podcast and this question is what makes a great business leader <laughs> I think someone who can be vulnerable and can be humble and can have a sense of humor. I think we all need to sometimes have a sense of humor because we all make mistakes sometimes and we need to own up to that and we need to own that. So I think having some kind of modesty. My wife actually works as a strength and conditioning coach for tennis players. So I'm actually very interested in the world of tennis. And one of my favorite, favorite players is Rafael Nadal, who is one of the most humble and modest people. And he is possibly at the moment the greatest player of all time. He has the most Grand Slam titles of anybody. He's got 22, which is absolutely incredible. But in every press conference, he plays down his own skills, his own abilities, his own potential to win that particular tournament. So I think he is uh, is a really interesting example of someone who's incredibly inspiring to millions of people around the world, but he's actually incredibly modest and humble and has a bit of fun too. Finally, do you have any final words for our listeners today? Well, just thank you so much for listening and I hope you've enjoyed it. And do look me up on social media. I'm on Twitter at Rosie Wilby, on Instagram at Breakup Monologues. And if you'd like to check out the book, of course, I would absolutely love that. It's available on all the good bookshops online and so on, uh, the Breakup Monologues. And it's a podcast too.